Welcome back to Comics Over Time, where we shine a spotlight on classic comic stories and the TV shows or big screen blockbusters that inspire them. We'll look to connect the dots from the comic book panels to moving pictures, examining where the adaptation followed the comics closely and where they decided to go their own way. And when we're done, we'll try and answer that most important of questions, who told the tale best? My name is Dwayne, and with me is my good buddy Dan. Dan, welcome. Hey there, Dwayne. How's it going? Little, little bit of a cold, I'm sure. You can hear that, but uh, soldiering on. We've got a movie to talk about, Absolutely. and it's not a Marvel movie. Nope. It was, uh, for all you out there, it was a big week for your intrepid hosts, as we actually left the security of the MCU and dipped our toes out into the larger world, uh, which includes DC Comics. We went to Shazam! Fury of the Gods that was just released this weekend, and we are ready to talk about the Big Red Cheese and his return to the big screen. Yes, yes, yes. Lots to talk about there, but we're going to dive into some comic book news real fast before we do that. And Dan, I saw this story on Gizmodo, and I just had to talk to you about it. DC Comics' wonderful swimsuit covers are sexy and tasteful. Um the Sorry. it's a slideshow on Giz, <laughs> it's a slideshow on Gizmodo uh, with a little bit of information. It says back in the nineties, Marvel released several swimsuit specials mimicking the Sports Illustrated swimsuit issue, uh, but for their audience of horny nerds. The results were well, tragic might be overselling it, but Marvel heroes, including some male ones, were stuffed into the skimpiest costumes imaginable, often contorting into overly sexual p- poses. Flash ahead 30 years, DC Comics has decided to follow suit, but the results are much, more, much, much better. Uh, there's eight variant covers. They're all coming out in June featuring DC heroes in swimsuits. People would actually wear in natural poses, and they're all the more sexy for it. Uh, you can go to the slideshow. You can see uh, many of these covers. you got Batman and Superman in one, uh, Wonder Woman and some of the other Amazon Women in One, uh, Power Girl, just to name a few. But there's there's some really cool-looking pictures there, and and I really liked it. And I don't know why it never occurred to me that there would be swimsuit issues of comic books, but it didn't until I saw this article. Yeah. No, I was I was I was there for back in the day when uh, yeah they they published those late '80s, early '90s. The they had the swimsuit issues pretty regularly. And they were they were goofy. That was the I think in your notes you even talked about it. They had frequently impossible poses. That's the what they used to call the broke back drawings, where a lot of the female characters would be shown with sort of their butt and the front of their chest both available for viewing at the same time. <laughs> and that's not physically possible. Yeah, that's not natural. But no, Jim Lee and some of the other guys from Image Comics or the, that went to Image Comics later managed to do it. So, yeah, these are these are goofy. They're variants. So if you happen to want swimsuit covers, you can get them. Otherwise, they won't be there. But this follows in a long, not so particularly proud tradition of comic books, sort of <laughs> catering, catering to this sort of thing. I did not like expect I said, I think you these... of all people to bring up this CDC side sure, of, I... of comic books. I'm the I'm the bad one here. Yes, of course. Pick, pick me. I think these are better. These are much more 
I, I don't want to say tasteful like the article says, but it's more of a just people kind of in swimsuits like you would see like um, more normally. They, they, they're they not trying to be overly sexual about it. It's just people in swimsuits and they just happen to be superheroes. So All right. That, that's better. You say so. Moving on. We're going to start spotlighting new books that are coming out in Marvel Unlimited each week. So if you've got a Marvel Unlimited subscription, these are some books that you can look at. Um, coming out this, this week actually is the first Invincible Iron Man, Invincible Iron Man number one. That looks really interesting. I think this is one that I might I might try and read because it, it the cover is really cool looking and and I'm a big fan of Tony Stark and Iron Man. And uh, the synopsis of this is Tony Stark, the genius billionaire playboy philanthropist, has lost it all, his wealth, his fame, his friends. But Stark doesn't realize he still has so much more to lose, especially when assassins start to come for him. It's the beginning of the end as the Golden Avenger must fight for his life and find out what it really means to hit rock bottom. Join Gary Dugan uh, doing from X-Men and one for Gary, who's done Avengers, as they take Iron Man to the darkest corners of the Marvel Universe yet. Sounds cool. Sounds very cool. Yep. Uh, otherwise, we have Fo- Photon number one is also number one coming out this week. Other books include uh, uh, Deadpool, we have a Planet Hulk Worldbreaker, Legion of X, The Amazing Spider-Man, and there's two Star Wars books, The Mandalorian and Bounty Hunters, that are out this week, new on Marvel Unlimited. Yep, and just as a note, by the way, why, I guess I kind of suggested this to us a few weeks ago that we make this change. Uh, most of the stuff we're reading, Dwayne's reading on Marvel Unlimited, it's kind of the, the main way that also we're seeing people follow along with us if they want to read along. Uh, with the stories that we've been doing. Not this week, obviously. There's not a lot of Shazam hanging out in Marvel Unlimited. But so the, the weird thing about this is that you know, these books may have been announced, like this Iron Man, way back in August of last year. It would have been solicited probably in the previews catalog in maybe September or so. Wouldn't have actually made it to the stands until, in this case, December 14th. And then there's a three-month window after that before it actually comes out on Marvel Unlimited, meaning that it could be like seven months after. In fact, I think we talked about this book way back sometime last fall being announced, right? But it's just a long time. And since it takes this long before you'd be able to read them, I think I like the idea of focusing on, on stuff that someone, when they're done reading whatever the comic reading is, could stop out and check out this book as well in Marvel Unlimited. So kind of looking at some stuff that maybe is a little easier for people to get a hold on if they're not heading down to their local comic book shop every uh, every week. Sure. So, Dan, you have a recommendation for us for this week? Yeah, this kind of inspired by the sort of the, the stuff we've been looking at recently with, with all of the uh, Shazam Greek gods and all the rest. And that is a story called Age of Bronze by somebody named Eric Shanower. He started it way back in 1998, and it's this detailed reimagining of the Trojan War. It's not published particularly regularly. Issues come out whenever he happens to get one done. But it's a really, really good story. Uh, Well done. You can go out to ageofbronze.com and take a look at where they're at, and the graphic novels and the like are available at stores around and the like. Uh, If you're interested in that sort of a fictionalized account of historical 
times, it is a really, really good award-winning comic book series. Highly recommend. That looks pretty interesting. I, I like that. I'm going to have to look at this a mm-hmm. little closer. Thank yeah. you. Thank you for the recommendation. Very cool. All right. And with that, we are done with the comic book news. And we are, before we jump into the film facts... This is your spoiler warning. We are talking about a brand new movie, Shazam! Fury of the Gods. Just came out this last weekend. And if you have not seen it and do not want to hear discussion of plot, of characters, of actors and actresses in the film, all that sort of thing, please pause your recording, see the movie, then come back and listen to us as we talk about the movie in great detail. Or if you've already seen it, hey, by all means, stick around. We're going to have some fun talking about it. All right, your film facts for Shazam! Fury of the Gods. The tagline, oh my gods. This movie was released March 17th, 2023. It is has a runtime of 130 minutes. Box office worldwide, Thursday through Saturday, $65.5 million. And domestically, uh, $30.5 million. It on a budget of 125 million. It has an IMDb rating of 6.7 out of 10. It's starring Zachary Levi, Ashley Angel, Jack Dylan Grazer, Rachel Ziegler, Adam Brody, Jaimon Hansu, Lucy Liu, and Helen Mirren. It is directed by David F. Sandberg, and the screenplay credits go to Henry Gaden, Chris Morgan, and Bill Parker. Those are your film facts for Shazam! Fury of the Gods. And that Bill Parker is not just coincidentally another guy. That is the creator of Shazam! Bill Parker, correct? I think it must be. I I think it must be, yes. Very cool. Very cool indeed. You, so anyway, Dan, you've got... You've got a recap, but we're gonna we're gonna intermix some some discussion topics in the recap, uh, so you don't have to talk for so very long without without me inter coming in and talking as well. Yeah, we we tried to change this up a while ago, and it seemed like it was pretty well received. So we're gonna try on, especially in the movies, which got have a lot of content sometimes, going to break it up a little bit. So. This movie actually begins all the way over in Athens with Hespera and Calypso, daughters of Atlas, stealing the staff that Shazam had broken at the end of the last movie. They use the fragments of the staff to regain their magic powers, cause a good deal of chaos in the museum they're in, and then force the wizard, who is their captive, to repair the staff. Meanwhile, Billy and his family are busy going to school, hanging around the house playing games, and occasionally saving folks from a huge bridge collapse. Facility of Philadelphia overall, though, is unimpressed by them and labels them the Philadelphia fiascos. So, what do you think of the setup, the start of this, etc.? It, I think, I think it was actually, it was actually a pretty solid setup. I, I liked, I liked the museum scene. The the, we'll talk. We'll talk more about the daughters of Atlas here after a little bit. But I, I think the uh, the 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 family Billy and the and the family against the suspension bridge was actually one of my favorite parts of this movie. 
Uh, despite it being a little tough to see, and we're definitely going to be talking about that more later, uh, it, to me, struck the right tone of action along with kind of funny, humorous sort of moments that I, I expect from a superhero film, uh, that I'd come to expect from superhero films. It, it got a chance to kind of spotlight what each of the heroes was doing and and how they were, you know, working together and working individually uh, and doing things they do best in order to save all these people. And and ba- basically they saved 160 plus people that were on this bridge before it, before it collapsed. They also had intended on saving the, you know, keeping the bridge from collapsing, but that didn't work. And it, as it always tends to go, it's not enough for the people of the city because yeah, news reports and things like that are talking, well, the bridge is destroyed. Despite the fact all these people got saved, the bridge is destroyed. And obviously they're the, they're the main reason for it. Yep. That, uh, I, I think it was a good setup of the fact that they're sort of, these heroes that are not only are they the young in terms of you know we know their kids who are taking on superhero identities but they're new at the job and because of that they sometimes don't necessarily do everything in the most elegant way they got done what they needed to saving people but then all their attempts to actually keep the bridge going down didn't work and it made them look a little bad i did like that yeah it gave us the ability to see a little of their personalities it gives you a very quick sort of bit of action that is high stakes overall, but low stakes in superhero terms. It's not like the world right. was going to end or whatever. You know, it yeah. was a bunch of people on a bridge they had to save. This is classic superhero tropes. We've yeah. been seeing people in trouble on bridges for decades. It's only one time the Minnesota Bridge, I think, is one of the few that's ever actually collapsed like this. But uh-huh. uh, but we see it all the time in uh in comic books. So I think it was fun. I also, this, this part I thought did see so you, you thought this was low lit as well. Yes. Uh, all the daylight scenes, all the, basically the entire movie, but specifically it was noticeable in the daylight scenes. It felt like even though it was daylight, even though it looked like it should be sunny, it felt low lit. It felt like there was very little contrast. And so everything appeared really dark to me. Uh, let's stick a pin in that. We will come back to that yeah. and talk about it later. But so this scene also for that. Yeah. Um, so anyways, they save the day. They go back home. Everything's fine. Freddie then goes back to school and gets pushed around by some bullies. He falls for a new girl and attempts to impress her by appearing as Captain Every Power to her. Sadly, though. She's actually been making friends with him initially, it seems, just because she thought that she could get to the Shazam family through him. And turns out she is a third sister of Atlas and that this whole thing has been a trap. Freddy ends up being hit by the power of the, the repaired staff. He's stripped of his powers. He's kidnapped. And the sisters then go in and try to trap the rest of, actually succeed in trapping the rest of the team and a good part of the city of Philadelphia in this snow globish looking force field that doesn't let anyone or anything in or out. Shazam then enlists the help of a magical pen named Steve that lives in a secret library at the Rock of Eternity and is able to use that to send the Sisters of Atlas a note trying to arrange a meeting. They do meet, what a, note a it fight was. occurs. What? Sorry. 
I said, and what a note it was. Uh, was, You know, you you have her reading the note in its entirety, sitting on this throne, and you just kind of shake your head listening to this thing. I did, in fact, yeah, kind of put my put my fingers up on the bridge of my nose and just sighed. Um, nonetheless, the note does its job. Everyone comes, they meet. Uh, essentially, the idea is to have a couple of cheesesteak sandwiches and talk it out. But instead, this big fight occurs. Hespera is captured by the team and is brought back to the Shazam lair. She unfortunately immediately escapes and steals a disguised golden apple from the tree of life that was in the um in the rock of eternity uh while she's on her way out the sisters though then so they have the apple they start fighting about what to do with it the shazam family sneaks into the realm of the gods using the same door that hespera had escaped through and freddy and the wizard are rescued by them everyone then returns to philadelphia where the kids let their parents know that they are actually you know, in secret identities as the, the Shazam heroes. Calypso betrays Hespera and orders the dra- her dragon laid on to stab her in the back with his tail, essentially killing her. And she then plants the apple in the mill- middle of the Phillies' pitching field, like in the, in the middle of the mound. A massive corrupted tree appears and monsters from Greek myth begin to terrorize the city. So, there you go. How'd this all work for you? I think I think the daughters of Atlas are actually quite quite interesting, and like I said, the, seeing them in the museum, seeing Hespera and Calypso steal back the the staff and get their powers, they they look very formidable and a force to be reckoned with, and. Uh, I found a note that said that the Daughters of Atlas never appeared in the comics and that their original character is specific to this film. So I don't know if yes. that match, it matches your inspira- information. As far as I can tell, yes, that's correct. The The Greek gods in general appeared regularly in the DC Comics universe. You know, not just through like the paradise island and and the like you know with with wonder woman but in all sorts of different places so it is a different telling of like you know olympus is a place that is not in disrepair in actual in actual dc comics and the like so there are some things going on there but these particular characters as far as i know have never been a part of any of it no i was actually really surprised that it was Helen Mirren and Lucy Lewis, two of these three daughters. Helen Mirren, specifically, very, very well-renowned actress, was, I thought, actually the especially good in this film. She showed a level of complexity that I think the other daughters didn't really show much of. I mean, she mm-hmm. kind of, you know, she has a plan. She's sticking to it. She's she's the eldest and, and yep. is, you know, trying to keep them... Uh, focused on the task at hand, what needs to be done. Uh, the scene you were talking about where, where she meets with Billy to discuss a possible exchange, possibly get getting the powers back. She wants them to give the powers back because they were stolen from, from Atlas uh, and, and some of the other gods. Um, and 
she has, she has a line in there where, you know, Billy basically says, don't take it personally. And she says, children stole the power of all the gods. This is very personal, Billy. She just, she was just amazing. Mm-hmm. I thought, I thought she was actually quite good. Conversely, Lucy Liu, despite being a fine actress in her own right, played really a much more generic villain, just somebody that's blinded by rage and vengeance and wants to basically nope. eradicate Earth. And and it's like a typical comic book villain, but at the same time, I mean, we've seen levels of complexity from villains or, or bad guys, you know, opposite heroes in superhero films that, that I think were a lot more interesting yeah. than, than her character. They could have taken it for, as a... As a group, there's complexity in the idea of if you have the ability through some power or some agency to either remake your world to be a better place or to destroy the world of the people who have hurt you, which one are you going to choose? Because in essence, that's the choice that they had to make. What, What Helen Mirren's character wanted to do was to use the apple to essentially... recreate the paradise that they had within the godly realm and lucy Liu is saying or her character saying what we really need to do is punish the mortals because this is what they need they deserve to be punished by their gods and you can't have both of them essentially so but but yeah i think in general especially near the end all of that really breaks down into just a very generic angry villain riding around on a dragon being being badass so i i did i did not have a dragon fitting anywhere in this movie so that was it that was a bit of a surprise but finally we had rachel ziegler who played athena who i thought actually did a fairly decent job as kind of that third i don't really necessarily want to call her an unwitting unwitting accomplice to her sister's plans because she definitely is is a part of the plan but she does kind of turn against them when they want to hurt Freddy and when they're, you know, when, when it turns out that uh, Callispo gets her way and she takes the, the, the seed of the world tree and, you know, plants it in, in the middle of the ballpark field. She, she then ends up as a result of it, getting her powers taken away, just like uh, some of the other Shazam uh, kids. And um, I don't know. She, she just seemed seemed like a almost a member of the of the extended Shazam family and and in fact at the end of the film you kind of see her staying with with them so it yep. sure to, sure sure did sure did end up that way it was very convenient that yeah. they had that sort of change and and really as far as her motivation you know it's it's that essentially she just that quickly decides this is the the direction she wants to go it was I think one thing we'll find as we go along here is a number of these things are best not to think too much about. When we talk right. about a comic book movie, this is really, uh, I, you know, preface some of the stuff we'll talk about later. I I went to this tonight and our theater for the first time I can remember in a long time had families all over. There were There were people and their kids. When we left, there was a tiny little green or like pink backpack with ears on it that got left by some kid when they were leaving that had to be taken back out right and and put to lost and found it's a movie that 
that is definitely skewing to different group than some of the other stuff. Um, and because of that, I think that, yeah, some of it was just fun and some of the motivations are simplified. Yeah. yeah. So everything's, everything's gone badly at this point, right? The tree's there, the city's in trouble. There's all sorts of crazy beasts running everywhere. Uh, chimeras and, and minotaurs and whatever. Also, most of the Shazamily, what they call the Shazam family, oh God. have, oh God. have, have lost their powers at this point to being hit by beams from the big, the big uh, staff. So they actually end up having to defend the city like the heroes they are on skittle-fueled demon unicorns which are evidently the only thing that all of the monsters in Greek myth are afraid of is unicorns. And while this is going on, Billy as Shazam fights with Calypso and her dragon. Shazam eventually realizes that the staff itself can store energy sort of like a battery and then explode. And then doing so, he'll destroy the tree. But he also realizes from Hespera that it would destroy a good part of the city. So he has her shrink the the snow globe down to just being around the stadium trapping him and the uh the dragon and lucy lou in there and then explodes it essentially vaporizing pretty much everything except himself and he in fact is dead as well so bad guys are gone uh, shazam makes the sacrifice and saves the day and then it's kind of a sad ending because, you know, Shazam's dead. But not yet, though. We actually find that the family buries Shazam up in the realm of the gods, which still looks in disrepair because there was no remaining gods to reignite the staff that had gone out when he used it to kill the dragon, uh, which would then return magic to the plane if they could get the staff back. But Wonder Woman technically is half Olympian god. She's a demigod. She shows up, she saves the day, restores the magic. Shazam actually pops up and returns from the dead, and everyone returns home for a nice home-cooked family meal. There we go. Tied up in a bow for you, Dwayne. A Very perfect nice. bow. So, Very nice. What do you think of the, the plasma globe fight and the ending? <laughs> yeah, I, I immediately just was like, I actually caught the foreshadowing this time. So Billy has a dream in which uh, he is having a dinner date with Wonder Woman, presumably. Only we never see her face. And ultimately, disturbing. The, yeah, ultimately we end up seeing the face of, of, of who he's talking to. And it turns out to be the wizard's face because the wizard is trying to find contact him and warn him that the daughters of Atlas are fighting. He wakes up in his room and there's this plasma globe that basically grow, starts glowing really bright and then explodes. And I'm like, that means something. And turns out the entire final act, the Citizens Bank Park plasma globe, as I called it, uh, ends up looking exactly like that. There's this big, nice. the, the big fight takes the, takes place in there. You know, he's he's punching the dragon as he's trying to let the the power build up in the staff and, and, and actually the, that final confrontation 
with Calypso and the dragon inside the inside the ballpark was relatively short and worked surprisingly well, like just as he drew it up, which, as we know from all the comic books we read, doesn't exactly always work out the way you planned it. Um, though I didn't necessarily think that Billy would get killed in the process. We, we've talked about how powerful Captain Marvel is. I was not expecting to see a Billy Batson lying dead on the ground when, when the, uh, when the globe dropped. So that was a little weird. Um, but of course, as you pointed out, they, they had a way to undo that as well. Uh, I was not a fan of the product placement of the Skittles and the, you know, using their taste, the rainbow line, not once, but twice during, during that, uh, during the, the, the scenes leading up to that. Uh, yeah, that and was, that was just... and there's no question that was literal product placement because Skittles actually even did ads for Shazam, so they were they yeah. were in on it. It's it's absolutely we were subjected to, you know, yeah, unapologetic was, advertising in the middle of our movie. It was it was very very in your face about it, so it was just sort of ridiculous. It it did still work though, and it was kind of funny. Yeah. And I I will yeah. forgive them as product placements go. It was awful, and I hate it. But it was more entertaining than many of them. I remember back in the old Smallville days, where they constantly had to drive around a new Ford and talk about all of its features while they were supposed to be doing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, drove me nuts. yeah. No, so, and and I bet and I bet for kids, they probably wouldn't have it water off the back sort of thing. They wouldn't have even really noticed. So, yeah, so that's the film. Um, quick just overview of it is I don't think there's a whole lot of depth that we have to worry about here. Kind of like a lot of the Shazam comics that we read last week, you know, like the the Monster Society of Evil. I don't know that a, a deep deconstruction of those comics would pay a lot of dividends. Kind of the same thing with this, right? Right. This was a a movie that you went to and you either just sort of said, I'm here for the spectacle and the dragon, or you didn't. And we can talk we can talk about it later. The reviews definitely are all over the place on this movie. I think more than a lot I've seen in a while. So in any case, um before we get into some of the other discussion points, what were your, when you came out of the movie, what was your thought on it? Actually, I'm going to tell you, this wasn't that bad. I, I, I actually liked this better than the first film, which which surprised me. That I, I guess I was expecting, I was not expecting much from the film. I, I hadn't heard much. I had kind of stayed away from reviews and things like that any information going into it. I remembered not really mm -hmm. caring for, I didn't like the first film and I, I, I was expecting, I probably wasn't necessarily going to like this one either, but I don't know the, the whole kids with powers thing, I think didn't work for me so much in the first film worked better for me in this film, though it was still kind of eye rolling sort of bad at points. Um, it just, I thought the story was a little bit better 
and a little more interesting the the what the villains were trying to do in this film i thought was i guess a little bit better and i thought i don't know it just the the way it kind of resolved itself out i just thought thought it was a much better story and and, and well executed i will especially agree with the well executed i think that the story like i say i don't think bears a lot of scrutiny it doesn't hold there's, up the scrutiny yeah there's a lot of there's a lot of stuff that's very comic book goofy in it right but in yeah. terms of what they wanted to do what they had for a script i liked the dragon i think the dragon looked pretty cool i liked some yes. of the some of the jokes like when he calls her Khaleesi as he's driving her pile driving yep. her through a through a, a building uh, on the dragon i liked even you know as eye rolling as it was those were some badass unicorns you know if you're gonna if you're going to make unicorns the scariest beasts in the forest man these these are some scary unicorns i would not yeah. want one of them angry at me you know no so after after all i kind of bought it that yeah i can i can see why nobody messes with them so they they did a nice job i think the the cgi was good and also the fact that a lot of it was still story related you know the the resolution in many ways came through the fact that in the end two of the three bad guys decided they did not want to go through with a plan that was going to destroy everything and there was a lot of of human interactions and like i like the family parts so i understand why there are people out there who probably this isn't their cup of tea right nonetheless in terms of being a what i would call a comic book movie of the sort that you'd have thought of before the mcu came around this would have been a classic comic book movie because the same sort of yeah. probably best not to think too much about some of the plot elements that happens here happens in almost every comic book we've been reading for the last year right right yeah. There's just certain things you're just like, you accept that this sort of thing happens because it drives the plot forward and there's only so many pages or so many minutes. So the plot, it's got to be moving, right? So, yeah. Yeah. So I, I enjoyed it. I, I do think I enjoyed the first one better. And I think the first one may have been stronger in some ways, especially in terms of a lot of the, the character motivations. But let's talk about specifics though so one thing you had down as your first discussion point you say is it dark in here tell me tell me about what you were what you were thinking with this from the opening moments of the film all the way to the very end this movie is dark and i don't mean like the content is dark i'm talking like the lighting and the contrast is dark everything looked like there was just this like haze over it almost everything just sort of appears in the dark or in shadows everything is a lot of things were really hard to see even daylight scenes he's in his doctor's office it shouldn't be that difficult to have a well-lit doctor's office yet it was dark like like there was i actually was wondering if my if our projector was bad the, in, in the movie theater. I know things are all digital now and, and that kind of thing doesn't happen. But at the same time, I 
I I tried to like rub my eyes. I tried different things like in the first 10 minutes of the film, the suspension bridge scene was like in the middle of the day and it was tough. It was dark as well. It, it felt like I was watching the Batman and, and I don't mean that in a good way. I felt like the, the Batman was an incredibly dark lit film. Everything was dark. Everything had shadows. Everything was in black or almost black. This is a family film, as you pointed out. And like it, it, it didn't look like it. Like there was no vibrant color at all anywhere in this film. Even the, like the red and the yellow of the, of the, of the, uh, you know, the costume, the, the, the suit is not, is not like popping off the, off the screen. Like I would have expected it to. Yeah. I think it's interesting because the, the Batman was a dark film in that it literally the 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 scenes were darkly lit. This one, I think, in many cases, it's not only there were there were times when it wasn't lit that high, but the the saturation of everything was very muted. So even if it yes. was well lit, it was like they turned down the brightness, you know, so that everything uh-huh. was and and I, there were times like in the especially in in the rock of eternity and some of those other scenes where i literally could not hardly see the the people there were times where the some of the Shazam family would be talking and it's like all you could see was the outline or the the brightness of their yellow chest symbols and the faces were almost invisible so i i would 100% agree i don't believe it's your projector i wish that they had brightened the film this would be a film that probably, once once it comes out on video, ripping it off to like a local copy AVI and then going in and fiddling with the brightness yourself might produce a, a better movie, which is sad. So there you go. Yeah. So do you want to talk about the the after scenes, the the mid credit scene, and then the the post credit scene? Because I'm not I'm gonna. There, there's some stuff going on in, in both of these that I'm not real familiar with. And the first is the, the mid credit scene, which featured uh, a couple members of, or a couple people uh, recruiting on behalf of the justice society. Yeah. Which actually, is different than the justice, which is different than the justice league. Apparently. Yes. They make a note of that a number of times. So yeah. So it's Amelia Harcourt and John Economos. Uh, who are two characters who've been on like Suicide Squad and Peacemaker. And they are out recruiting on behalf of Amanda Waller for the Justice Society. And did you go to Black Adam by any chance? I did, yes. So Black Adam, the Justice Society is Hawkman's group. Yes. I I did end up looking that up after the film. And I'm like... Oh, he, the head of this is Hawkman, and he was in Black Adam. I remember that. Yep. So that kind of starts tying it together a little bit. And Shazam has actually been a member of the Justice Society at various times. He's also been in the Justice League. But uh, it is interesting because the, the tone of Peacemaker slash Suicide Squad and Shazam could not be more <laughs> different. So I don't know how exactly you squash him into that universe and don't just have it be 
a complete disaster. But that is yeah. that is what they were at least at least theorizing in the first after scene. And then the second one may have been one of my favorite weird deep cut scenes I've seen in ages. It is Savannah in prison with all those weird little drawings on the wall and Mr. Mind up on the windowsill exactly where we saw them like two or three years ago at the end of the first Shazam movie because the first Shazam movie had an after scene where Mr. Mind's like, hey, Savannah, let's get something done and destroy this big red cheese, right? And now it's it's Savannah complaining that two years later, Mr. Mind still hasn't put anything into motion. He's still stuck in prison. And Mr. Mind's like, hey, I can't fly. I got no legs. It takes me a while to do things, but I've almost got the plan ready. And he's like, okay, well, all right, let's do it. And he's like, oh, I've got one more thing I need to do. One and then more he, thing, yeah. He crawls off again, probably for another couple of years. So I would love to see those two actually be the villains of a third movie if they decided to do it. Because those are his classic villains. Savannah and Mr. Mind together is kind of what you normally see. Uh, that and, you know, a good old brouhaha with Black Adam would be the things remaining. That said, <laughs> after this one, the uh, the initial take is we probably aren't going to see a lot from that. But uh, if they did continue it, I think eventually... Mark Strong is going to be sick of actor scenes and they're going to have to let him either come back and be a character or he's going to go away. So anyway. So, so we've talked about some kind of the initial reactions to this film and I want, I want to ask or talk about maybe what's, what's missing. Um, this isn't a bad film, but I wouldn't say go so far as to say it's an especially good film either. But at the very least, I guess I would have thought that it could have done at least similar opening weekend numbers as the first Shazam film, which was a very respectable $53.5 million domestically. Uh, it has done roughly 60% of that. Uh, and some of the... try, try I, I've been reading a number of articles for suggestions as to why maybe it hasn't been doing so well. And... You know, I was reading an article on Deadline talking about maybe they're, they're, the numbers weren't as good as they needed to be to, to even need a sequel. Maybe it didn't do well enough initially. The first movie didn't do well enough to warrant even a sequel. Or maybe there wasn't a core DC fan audience that really wanted to see a sequel. Uh, or, or that there wasn't any real connective tissue to that larger DC universe. Because like even when James Gunn and Peter Safran were talking about kind of their chapter one gods and monsters, their reboot of the DCEU, they really didn't have a spot for Shazam in this. So, you know, there it, it didn't the first film, it didn't have any real connection to the outside DCEU, which probably wasn't a bad thing three years ago. Um but like now in this movie, we see Wonder Woman, you know, Billy is talking about Batman and Aquaman and the Flash when he's talking to the doctor and things like that. So we know he knows who they are and they're they're a part of the same universe. But like there's no no real mm -hmm. connection 
here. So what what do you think is missing from 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 this film or why why do you think do you have any thoughts as to why maybe this film isn't doing as well as the first one was? At least from you know, an think, opening weekend standpoint. I think one thing that a few people have talked about and that I found weird is that the the promotion for this film I think was bad. That the ads that they ran, the trailers they ran, the way they promoted it did not properly position it as what it is, which is a family-friendly adventure movie, not a superhero movie for 30 and 40 and 50-year-old geeks. Yeah. Right? This is a right. this is a film that I went to it with my family. And that makes perfect sense. I've got a 16-year-old. i got an 18-year-old. They've been watching movies with me forever. My wife likes these every once in a while. They went and had more fun with this, my wife especially, than with most of the other superhero movies we go to. Because it was just fun entertainment. And I think for a lot of folks who aren't really into superhero movies, this is what they would think of as a fun, goofy superhero movie. Because it is sort of like the modern equivalent of... Batman 66, right? Sure. So there's something that if they'd have just played into that, that this is going to be jokey, it's going to be something that's more just a light, go out and have a good time, uh, you know, at the theater kind of a movie, that probably would have done better. But if you get people going into it who've just come off of Black Adam and are thinking maybe it's going to be the next, iteration of that side of show and people who aren't really into the dceu would reasonably think that two guys with the same bolt on their shirt would have similar types of vibes right they're going to be disappointed your hardcore dc eu audience is not the driver for this sort of content and in fact i wouldn't expect most people who really enjoyed the batman or really enjoyed black adam Right. to really enjoy this movie. No. And to an not. extent, I think the problem is that DC doesn't know how to just say, look, we've got a big universe we can sell to multiple audiences rather than simply trying to somehow get back that, you know, sort of initial Justice League audience that they had 10 years ago. Right? Um this was a good but not great movie that if it had been played as a campy, fun sort of show would have, I think, been able to find a place in the market because it is different. But even though it's different, they turned down all the saturation to make it dark and they didn't play up the real comedy in the advertising and they tried to pretend that it's a traditional dceu movie even though it's not yeah it's it's weird so you actually had a pretty full audience in your in your theater was yeah over half the seats were gone two-thirds something like that we were so we went to an eleven thirty showing a matinee early matinee showing 110 seat occupancy for the theater there were seven people in there including my wife and I. Mm-hmm. There was a one one family of four, a single person, and then us two. And 
It was, it, and it's like, I don't know. They're just in, in a in a city like Phoenix. I know there's lots of theaters, but at the same time, it's like if this was drawing well, I guess I would have expected a you know early afternoon uh, matinee to do more than seven seven people. Yep. No, it it is not doing particularly well. I don't know that it's going to be, you know, a terrible. It's going to make some money because the Shazam movies cost less to make than a lot of the other superhero movies by quite a bit. But, you know, one of the other problems just for sort of Hollywood in general now in the streaming era and the like is when we went there, my son, he, he gets us all in free, right? But if we have had to pay for our tickets for this show, it would have been over $60 just to get into the theater for a family of four. And then you're talking all of your high-priced popcorn and everything else. It would have been easy to drop 100 bucks going to this movie. Right? I do think that this is probably going to do well on, like, the cheap nights. And it's going to do well maybe when it gets to a point where people can see it for a little less. But the problem is that these days... None of that matters. It's all this first weekend driven buzz. And this is not the kind of movie that the people who drive first weekend dollars are going to want to go see, is what I'm worried about. You know? Right. So, yeah. it uh, It's interesting. But I, other than that, I do think that, yeah, that's, it's not just what's missing, but it's what's included that they still don't trust the character enough that they don't feel they need to put in some cameo from one of the big three. You know, why does Wonder Woman have to be in this movie? And it's just so that they could put her into the marketing and and have a Wonder Woman appearance in the trailers. She really doesn't have much of a function outside of that. So that's that's the other problem is there's just not really a commitment to the bit from Warner Brothers, I think, and that probably doomed them. It also didn't help that they've been delayed two or three times now, I think. Yeah, the the release date of this film has bounced around a lot. It, it, it had to do first with the pandemic and some things like this. There's been, you know, some some moving around of, of uh, release dates because of kind of the shakeup uh, at DC Studios. Uh, I think there was probably a very smart observation that this movie did not want to challenge Avatar when it, when it was originally scheduled to come out in December. It would have come out kind of head to head against the the new Avatar film, and um, so so that yeah it is it has it it was supposed to initially uh, be released about a year ago, uh, early April twenty twenty two, and bounced as late as June 2023 before finally ending up here on March 17th. Yeah. It's just, and most of it wasn't its fault, like you say. So I, I think there's just been a lot of things that have have gone against this movie. But, oh well. In any case, um, it, it wasn't... It could have been a number of things, but I think that if you look at it for what they wanted to make, which was a family-friendly sequel that kind of played on the strengths of what the first movie did and extended on them, 
it probably did that. I don't know that the movie itself is disappointing. I enjoyed it, but I enjoyed it kind of because, like we talked about last week, I knew what I was going in to see. And I was looking for a more innocent product, which is what we got. You know? You wanna, do you want to talk? You've, you've seen and talked uh, briefly about some of the reviews uh, that this film has gotten so far. Do you want to dive into that a little bit more? So, yeah, let's talk reviews. And I think this is interesting because the reviews on this have been all over the place. There have been some people who absolutely seem to love it. There have been some people who gave it literally zero stars. Like, this is one of one of the most <laughs> catastrophic things ever done to to the history of cinema. It is not. No, I'm sorry. I, won't, I, I can't agree with no. that. Basically, I think it comes into two camps, though. And that is that there are some people who are satisfied with what it was, which is sort of a campy, entertaining family movie. And there are some people who were looking for something more and ended up seeing instead something that had significant plot issues, significant scripting issues. Uh, didn't really enjoy the attempts at humor or even saw the fact that kind of like with Quantumania and other things, that attempt to continually inject humor into even things where you've got dark themes really sort of saps, saps a lot of the drama and the like away. And I see both sides of this, right? Yeah. I went in expecting camp. And thinking that I was going to need to turn my analytic side off. And I largely did that, right? <laughs> but if I had spent a lot of time thinking about some of the dialogue, you know, the the Skittles references being there a couple of times, and some of the other there's a there's a lot of lines in this that really seem pretty trite. And if you're trying to Look at this as so you know superhero as this elevated form that's now real cinema. This is not, this is not going to cut it, right? Uh, and I don't blame people for wanting more than that, but I think you should know what your source material is. And if there's one comic book character who should not be held to the levels of Citizen Kane, it is Shazam. It is Captain Marvel. Right? Sure. Because yeah. that's just never who he's been. Yeah. Never who he's been. You you read the Captain Marvel stuff from the 70s and the 40s stuff was even... It's literally just ridiculous. And it people is. loved it. It's for very that. ridiculous. It was, it was kid wish fulfillment type of stuff. And that's really what this is. It's a bunch of kids who get superpowers. And then they still are kids going around doing what they can to help folks. So, yeah. But I, I do think that a lot of the reviews came in and and just kind of looked at it and went, this is the state of superhero films now, right? Because they didn't think of it in terms of Captain America. They just thought of it in terms of we've had this continual slate of disappointing movies, and now this is even more campy. And it, the difference is, they're looking at it as a graph with the direction going down 
as opposed to just looking at the fact that Captain Marvel's always been in this goofy, campy camp in the first place. And the rest of the movies, Quantumania is coming towards Shazam. It's not that Shazam is somehow or another emulating that, right? So, yeah, I think enjoyable but forgettable was a, a term I heard from a number of people. I'd largely agree with that. Um, some people also, what was one of them? More unfocused and less satisfying than its predecessor. Shazam! Fury of the Gods still retains almost enough of the source material's silly charm to save the day. So sort of backhanded compliments were relatively common in the reviews. Uh-huh. So, yeah. Yeah. I would, I would not defend this movie against, like, all attackers. But I think if someone is open-minded and they know a little bit about Shazam and they see this film, they're probably going to go, you know, that's about what you would expect, and it's fun. I think we as an audience have almost been trained to think of superhero films, all of them to be a certain way, the, the Marvel way. And that all characters need to sort of conform to this level that the a lot of the early Marvel films kind of set that bar at, right? And, and I think if you look at, you know, some of the later Marvel films, you start looking outside Marvel. I think that's where a lot of this, like, negativity comes from. I, I don't think people look at this stuff at it, on its own merit anymore. They look at it by this artificial standard that was created upwards of a decade plus ago and, and expecting everything to be at that level. And, and like, as you point out, not all comic books and comic book characters are created equal and, and they all have different differences and those differences should be celebrated and they should be reflected in the adaptations that they're in. And I think, you know, if you're going into this movie thinking of like Civil War or Endgame or or something like that, you're going to be disappointed. These this isn't that. But if you look at Shazam as a whole, th- this very much feels like a, a continuation of the first movie. And, you know, I I didn't like the first movie, but I liked this one better. And and like you liked the first one better than this one, but I think we like seeing comic books and seeing what that looked like made me appreciate the movie more because like it made sense to me what I would, what I was seeing and that it really wasn't geared towards me that, you know, this is family first and very much like, not that Marvel isn't family first, but it is sort of kind of hitting the older kind of, like comic book generation first and then doing enough to kind of spread out the audience so that everybody else gets a little something out of it too. Yep. I think that, you know, everybody's welcome to watch Shazam or Shazam 2 here, but it really is designed as a movie that's going to be a family movie and you can go and hang out and watch it and have fun with the dragon and whatever else. But you can't expect it to be Peacemaker or you're going to be disappointed. You can't expect it to be even Black Adam or you're going to be disappointed a bit because those movies have a very different demographic they're aiming for and a very different sort of feel. So, yeah, it was 
It was interesting. I'm, I do think it's, it's interesting you say that reading the comics gave you a different perspective on this. Because that actually is what I, would, I had hoped. In the back of my head, I'm like, if I could get him to read some Shazam comics, it doesn't mean that this movie's better than the first one. It just means now you've got a perspective, maybe, that when you watch that yeah. first one, you're like, ah, this isn't Batman, right? But now you know right. that Shazam isn't Batman, and maybe that helped a little bit because you just understand the context yeah. there. What makes me angry sometimes is that a lot of the negativity for Shazam comes from people who are purportedly DC fans, people who have read comic books, because the success of any DC properties that don't sort of fall under the grimdark worldview that the original Justice League and some of these movies came from actually ends up making it more difficult for them to restore that as the vision of DC Comics that they'd like. So they react negatively to it, even though there should be the ability to have a dark Batman and a light Captain Marvel in the same universe. You know? Right. So, oh well. So as always, we're going to talk about some some interesting tidbits about the movie and some references to the comics that we found during the film. Uh, first, there because this is a brand new movie, there really actually isn't a lot that I that we could share this time. You know, as we get further and further away, once like the DVD release comes out and uh, and like a uh, you know some of those tracks that explain how how the production occurred, you get a lot more of this, but couple interesting things I found is the fi this film, Shazam! Fury of the Gods, was announced a week after Shazam! The first movie debuted in theaters. Not the f that there would be a sequel Correct. To, the, to this. Occurred one week after, after de the debut of the first film. According to, to Sandberg, the, the plot point of Fawcett City, the, uh, the city encased in a globe... Philadelphia being trapped in a dome was inspired by the Simpsons movie from 2007, where Springfield ends up God. in a dome, which is, which is lovely that the Simpsons are, are, you know, they've been around for so long and have inspired so much. Uh, there was an, actually an article in on Polygon that talked about the Wonder Woman cameo starting off as a goof. Uh, in fact, it was thought of as kind of a nod to the Superman cameo from the end of the first film. If you remember that with the tray in the in the cafeteria and like the fake cardboard Superman. And it also, conveniently enough, uh, solved the issue of how to bring Billy back to life after he died. Mm -hmm. uh, Sandberg said uh, she was in the script from the beginning, which was exciting, but I didn't really believe it because of the experience in the first film. And even when we shot most of the scene, they were like, Oh, she's not going to make it here on this day. And we'll have to go shoot it with a stand in and then pick up the pieces later on. And obviously Gal Gadot ended up in the film. I'm not going to say that that was the best part of the film or anything, because it, it did feel a little weird. Um, it just, but it, but, but it was something they had planned from the beginning. The other interesting thing is Sandberg had actually planned to have cameo appearances by Cal L, Clark Kent slash Superman, and Bruce Wayne, 
or otherwise known as Batman, uh, mm-hmm. showing them unsex- unsuccessfully trying to break into the dome. Superman unsuccessfully breaking into the dome while Batman just stands there and looks at him. And uh, that would have been even, I think, weirder than than just the uh, <laughs> Wonder Woman thing at the yeah. end. Yep. I think that's probably true. As for references to the comics, I loved this. We actually got a mention of Captain Marvel in this film. Uh, after Billy gets knocked out of the air by the dragon, uh, several citizens citizens of Philadelphia saw him and were trying to give show appreciation to him. And one of them actually called him Captain Marvel. And coincidentally enough, the uh, person who did was Michael Gray, who was the previous live action Billy Batson from the 1974 Shazam, uh, is it a movie or was TV it a show? show? It's the Shazam, TV show. Shazam and Isis shared a Saturday morning cartoon show. Have you never there seen it? There we go. Classic. I've not seen classics it. Classics. I have not seen it. I have not. And uh, he's not only that, but he's wearing a red and yellow sweater and his, uh, his dress from the show. And uh, yeah, he, he calls out hey captain marvel and so we actually he did actually get called captain marvel in this um they also spelled out where shazam came from what the acronym was and that it was Mm -hmm. the the powers from from the gods which is pulled directly from the comics and then i did not know this but i saw it in one of the uh references on the on the dc wiki was uh Titano the super ape. There was a drawing of Titano the super ape, who is apparently an ape from uh, yes. one of the DC Superman, comics. Superman comics. Yep. Absolutely. One other thing just to, that I, I noticed, um, when the little girl brought back the kitten, she smuggled one into the house. She actually called it Tawny. Yeah. So... Ah, maybe, yes. Maybe it, I did not catch that. It will grow up to be a tiger, tiger-striped cat instead of a tiger, and eventually will gain superpowers, like the rest of the family. All right, Dwayne. So, I think that's most most of what we wanted to to get to. Now it's time for the face-off. We're going to go back and take a look. For those of you who may be new, this is the point where after every two weeks of looking at media from comics and film, we take a look and let Dwayne tell us which one did it better. Was it the comic books we read last week or the movie we saw this week? And so what was facing off here is Shazam, Monster Society of Equal. Of Ah, what's facing off this week is Shazam, Monster Society of Evil from 2007. It's a four-issue series by Jeff Smith against Shazam Fury of the Gods from Friday. What do you got for us, Dwayne? Which one of these did you like better? This is tough. Um, the The comic book was actually pretty, pretty solid, pretty good. I'm going to, I'm going to give the nod to the movie in that I actually do think it did a better job of hooking me in this week than the first movie did three years ago. 
I, I, despite some of the flaws that it had, I, I think I appreciate the character more and, and maybe the comic books are, are getting slighted a little bit because they were the ones that helped me get there. But I, I, I don't know. I just, I, I think I, I think I liked the movie just a little bit more. This is a shocking development considering how we got here where we're like, you wouldn't even, yeah. you, you wouldn't even watch this except as a, a way out of having to see cocaine bear. And now suddenly yes, it's, it's taking the face off. That's impressive. All right. I will stick with the Jeff Smith books cause I really did enjoy them. How it's about reasonable? How about if it's the Alex Ross Shazam book against the movie? I think I might go with the Alex Ross book, to be perfectly frank. I think I think it was the look of the book, and I think the story kind of was a little bit better to me. Yeah. Uh a little more little little more of a little more depth to it, I guess. Hard hard to beat Alex Ross art. So there we go. Yeah. For me, yeah, I I I still like the comic, but the the movie was fun. I'm not going to I'm not going to go into a cage match to defend it against its detractors cuz I understand where some of those folks were coming from, but I liked it. But I really liked Monster Society of Evil. Also, as an addendum to the face off, just as a note. <laughs> we have we have a Philly battle. My kids and I just watched the first Rocky movie last week. We watched it like a couple days before we went to Guanamania. And I actually asked them, 16 and an 18-year-old, I'm like, okay, who did it better? The 50-year-old Rocky movie, right, about a bunch of characters that you've never heard of, or the brand new shiny superhero movie? And they both said that they liked Rocky better than Shazam 2. They also said they liked it better than Quantumania. And I think that's telling in some ways that, you know, Rocky is very dated in a lot of ways. It obviously is a simpler movie. Neither of them's boxing fans. But if you tell a great story about real people, man, you can go a long way. And that's one of the things that, yeah. that I think they need to, to keep remembering as they, as they make these things. Is the dragons are cool. The unicorns are cool but they don't carry the movie on themselves. Where are we going next week, Dan? Are we getting are we jumping back into back into the MCU and back into Marvel? I think I think it's probably time. I've taken you away for too long at this point and and we have to get back back to business. So, and it's a big one because we are starting out with our two weeks of Captain America Civil War. So next week, we're going to be reading Civil War number one through seven, and one of the sort of supplementary series to the Civil War series called Frontline. So Civil War Frontline one through seven as well. These are the comic books that the movie was based off of, so it should be a relatively one-to-one -one sort of reading experience with then the Civil War movie that we're going to be watching the week afterwards. So... There are, by the way, about a hundred Civil War tie-in books. We are we are not reading all oh, of them. Oh gosh, we are. Thank goodness. We are reading the main series and Frontline and and calling it good for now.
that's going to wrap it up for us this week. We'd like to thank you all for joining us. If you're new to the podcast, please consider subscribing on your podcast player of choice. That way you'll get each new episode as soon as it's released, usually on Wednesdays. Sorry about the slight delay on uh, last week's episode. We will we'll, we'll try and make up for that going forward. If you're new to the podcast or you've been with us from the beginning, we'd love to get your thoughts on the show. You can send them to us via email. That address is comments at comicsovertime.com. Or you can message us via Twitter. That address is at comicsovertime. Dan, Civil War is actually one of my favorite MCU films, and I am very excited to read some of the source material that helped build that movie. Yep, it's, uh, it's pretty entertaining. Some crazy stuff. We will talk about it next week. Have yourself a great one, man. Right. Until then, take care.